Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste. So I'd like to begin this talk with one of my favorite personals that I've run across over the last decade, SBF, Single Black Female Seeks Male Companionship. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck, hunting, camping, and fishing trips. Cozy winter nights spent lying by the fire, candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. Rub me the right way and I will respond with tender caresses. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work. Kiss me and I'm yours. I'm a swell, good-looking girl who loves to play. Call 712-555-1212 and ask for Daisy. Turns out that 15,000 calls from men all over the country uh, came to the Atlanta Humane Society. (laughs) This is an adoption offer for a black lab retriever, eight weeks old. (laughs) Now, the reason I like it so much is we live in, in such projections about not... I mean, you can see it totally with the personals, like who we imagine somebody's going to be, but we do it through our lives. Uh, what's going on with another person and how they're relating to us. And, you know, if we feel that we're being accepted and loved, we go up. And if we feel we're being pushed away, criticized, we go down. I was teaching a weekend or so ago at Omega and I had a chance to connect with different people and the most intense emotions always circle around the level of connectedness in relationship and when there's strong bonding or connection there's a sense of this open-heartedness whether it's with a romantic partner or with a friend or with the group that gathered which was very um, beautiful and when there's a divorce, when there's a real uh, distancing from a child or from a parent, just the grip of the pain, we go up and down, and it's so biochemical. Um, our DNA wants to belong. We are deeply, deeply oriented around feeling connectedness, feeling lovable, and feeling worthy. It really matters. And we can see it with the circuitry of the brain, how when we have a sense of that, you know, all the reward circuitry lights up. You know, dopamine and other chemicals, you know, surge through our system. And when there's a breakup or something that disconnects, we plummet. The word heartbreak, you know, we... It's like been likened to what's exactly happening in the brain when a drug addict is going through withdrawal. So you can sense our evolutionary setup, which is to really uh, do whatever we can to find belonging or to protect ourselves from being pushed away. And here we are, as we know, uh, living in a world where there's pervasive suffering around feeling separate and unlovable and unworthy. So, the classic motif of healing, and this is really the hero's journey, and you can look at it in an existential way, 
is that we incarnate and on some level there's some separation, we're leaving the garden a kind of ego develops in the whole world of grasping and wanting and agendas and feeling, you know, that we're in some way needing to be a certain kind of person emerges. So that this is for all of us. This is kind of the existential grounds that we all go through. That with the development of a sense of an ego or separate self, there are fears around and insecurities around our value, around how lovable we are. And then as the hero's journey continues, we become aware of the pain of separation, we become aware of the pain of feeling unworthy, we become aware of our fears and our insecurities, and as that awareness becomes more awake and more sensitive and more tender, we begin to touch into the, the loving that helps us to return to the garden with an awake awareness. Now, truth is, we've never left the garden. I mean, it's just a metaphor. And think of it, like a wave, like evol- we, we emerge, we incarnate, it's like a wave in the ocean. The wave isn't leaving the ocean, but it thinks it's separate. And what we're doing is we're the wave waking up to our ocean-ness. We're realizing we, we never left, but when we return to the garden, it's with another level of awareness. Now, the this hero's journey that we're all on. We're all on this journey of waking up and discovering really our belonging is entirely shaped by our conditioning of our culture and our families, our caregivers. And so what I'd like to do in this class is reflect some on this journey and look at it both in terms of individually and a little bit, you know, in terms of our culture. And the essential piece I want to look at is how our loving with others, our capacity to let in love and to offer, is an intrinsic part of returning more awake to the garden. I want to look at that with you. And it's not always focused on, especially if you're familiar with, um, you know, some of the classic Buddhist teachings, you sometimes hear the message of don't, don't look for other people's love, it's every, everything's right in here, right? It makes me often think of this cartoon I once saw of um, two women are having coffee and one of them has a, a, has a son and he's up on a ladder and he's wearing goggles and he has a blowtorch and, right, and he's burning into the wall the words, I need attention. Or no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got it wrong. I need love. And his mother's saying, oh, he's just doing that to get attention. (laughs) We need love. In fact, one of the basic refuges for coming home to who we are is in the relational web, in feeling that, that connectedness with each other. Now, of course, we can get addicted and codependent, have all sorts of shadow stuff happen around that. But our basic capacity to let in the loving and to offer it out is a precious part of the flow that really wakes us up to our non-separation, to the truth of our belonging. So another personal that just comes to mind was in a Buddhist rag and it says, 
tall, dark, handsome Buddhist looking for himself. (laughs) Okay. So, as we explore this refuge of um, letting in love and offering it out, it's another way of saying really letting in blessings and offering blessings. That we, we can be that and offer that with each other. I'd like to draw on one of my favorite parables, and I've done this uh, in a few talks, this same parable, because I love it so much, which is um, the prodigal son, very well known probably to most of you. And I'll be in particular, Henri Nguyen, who's a Christian mystic and author, wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which I have here, and as you can tell, I've marked pretty much every page. But... um, I'd like to explore it as he, um, kind of with the, with the lens that he offers, because I found it so valuable. Now, just to remind you and all of us, the, the basic outline of this parable is that uh, a father has two sons, and he's divided their inheritance is, is between them. But the younger son decides he doesn't wait till want to wait till his father dies. He wants his portion now. And not only that, he takes his portion and he leaves home. He's just got things to do, places to go, things he wants to experience, and he squanders it. And he ends up almost starving and finally realizes the error of his ways, you know, that he just had been off in some crazed trance in some way. And he decides to return and put himself really at his father's mercy. And so I'm going to read you just the the last part of the parable directly. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity. He ran to the boy, clasped in his arms and kissed him. and And his son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the calf we've been fattening and kill it. We will celebrate by having a feast because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was out in the fields and on his way back as he drew near the house he could hear the music and dancing. Calling one of the servants he asked what it was all about and the servant told him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the calf we've been fattening because he has got him back safe and sound. He was angry then and refused to go in and his father came out and began to urge him to come in but he retorted to his father, All these years I have slaved for you and never once disobeyed any orders of yours yet you never offered me so much as as a kid for me to celebrate with my friends. But for this son of yours, when he comes back after swallowing up your property, he and his loose women, you kill the calf we've been fattening. The father said, My son, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. But it is only right we should celebrate and rejoice, because your brother here was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. Okay. So that's the parable. Now... In 1983, Henri Nguyen encountered Rembrandt's very famous uh, rendering of this. And he was struck in that picture by 
the, the positioning of the figures and the expression of compassion the father's offering his loving blessing to his son and it was actually considered as one of Rembrandt's greatest works a real spiritual kind of transmission in it and so Henri Nguyen describes his own longing to be received in just that way to have some loving presence receive him and and offer blessings Um, and when I look at the image on the book, and I'll I'll leave it out for those of you that want to look at it. Um, It's incredibly moving. It it touches something, some, again, it's kind of archetypal place, I think, in all of us that just yearns to be received by some larger, all-loving presence. Just to really... um, feel that loving us, to let in that love. So as the story goes in this book, in The Return of Prodigal Son, the way Nguyen describes his own journey, over ten years he kept going back and looking at the picture over and over and finding more and more meaning in it. And it really revealed for him a lot about his own life. And he found himself in the younger son. He could see how he had left home, how his grasping after approval, after getting other people to um, in some way give him their, you know, their, their thumbs up, his grasping after success, after being somebody, you know, had actually, he, he left who he was. And he could also, over time, see he was also the older brother, the one who separated himself by holding judgment on other people who had a kind of aversion and a sense of how others were falling short and also judged himself. He was the older brother in the way he felt like a victim so often. So he saw himself in these, in both brothers and as we listen and reflect, the two brothers are the two basic ways we leave the garden that we leave home. You know, we leave the present moment by sensing something's missing, I need something more. So we're leaning forward, we're on our way to the next thing. We're wanting uh, for the next moment to contain what this moment does not. We're wanting more something in our life. It's kind of if-only mind. If only I had that partner or that job or weighed ten pounds less or had more money or whatever, then I'd be okay. So that's the, the younger brother. And we have in us the older brother that then judges that. I'm a bad person for being that way. And judges others and locks into a sense of separation. So the healing journey that's described in the book is one of recognizing the suffering of leaving home. So we pause and say, well, what's between me and happiness right now? And we start sensing how we've congealed into this separate egoic self that is dissatisfied and wants more or is blaming or is reactive in some way. We recognize that suffering and then as the book goes on to describe, we open to it, we be with it, we actually let ourselves feel it rather than continuing to run away. And then we open to love. We actually let 
that suffering place to be touched by love. We let it in. We let in forgiveness or acceptance or whatever flavor of love, compassion. So the core message in the parable and in most spiritual traditions is that the love that heals is already here. It's already here. The father celebrates the return of his son. He's pre-forgiven. Love is already here. And you can see it in the picture when you look close. One of the things I found most interesting is that in the picture you'll see the left hand... He has his hands on his son's shoulders. And the left hand, it's a masculine hand. You can see by the fingers, it's, it, it's affirming and it's blessing and it's like saying, I see you. So it's an affirmation. And the right hand is very feminine and it's very caressing and comforting. Um, it's, it's just pure loving. So you can see love is already here in, in the way the father's blessing his younger son and in his words to the elder son. His words so simple. You are always with me. You are with me always. All that I have is yours. So again, we never leave the garden and the love is here but we have to wake up through that sense of separateness to rediscover that the awareness and love is here. There's an Indian teacher, his name is Punjaji, no longer alive and the way he put it has um, always touched me. He says, love is always loving you. Love is always loving you that the more we wake up, the more we sense that as the case. It's, it's like the ocean is always loving the waves that are part of it. So even when we're deluded, even when we're completely in a sense of isolatedness, the ocean's still loving us. And the more that we begin to let in love, the more our sense of identity shifts and we become that ocean that's loving the waves. And so it is in uh, this parable that the that as Henri Nguyen describes it the more he opened to the the younger son and the older son with presence and with letting in love letting in forgiveness the more he became the father he realized that he was that loving presence that was holding the different elements in his own being does that resonate for you that shift that journey. Okay. Let me uh, then focus on this. How come the emphasis on letting in love? Most of the time we don't talk about it so much. Most of the time we talk about, you know, offering our love to others, to ourselves. We don't talk about letting in. And yet, when I explore with people places of suffering we start getting to that recognition of how difficult it is. You know, about ten years ago Harville Hendricks, who many of you know of is one of the most well-known couples therapists in the world and his wife, also well-known couples therapist, Helen Hunt you know, they write books together on self-help and they train couples and so on they, their own relationship was crumbling about ten years ago. And as it turned out, 
Harville realized he couldn't really trust or believe that Helen loved him. So the very core of the trouble was that he really didn't trust he was loved or lovable. So let me ask you to reflect for a moment for yourself. So we're going to start to ground this in in your experience. So please bring to mind someone that you know, at least your mind knows, really cares about you, holds you with love. Someone that loves you. And it's fine if the person's not alive. Because we can feel love regardless. We can feel it if a person's not in the same room and if they're not any longer in their bodies. Someone that you know loves you. A sense, if you can really let that loving in, if there's a felt sense in your body, in your heart, an embodied knowing of that loving. And if you can let it in, just notice what it's like and train to that sense of letting in love. Let it fill you, just be that loving. And if it's difficult, just to be honest with yourself, okay, that's difficult, and sense, so what is it that makes it so hard? Bring your attention to it. What makes it hard to let it in? What do you notice? It's fine if you'd like to keep your eyes closed or if you'd like to open your eyes. What I've noticed uh, in my own life and working with others is we accept the love we think we deserve. In other words, to open to love, we first have to confront the places in us that feel unworthy or ashamed. And we're, we're armored because we don't trust that we're really lovable. So we feel like if we open, if we open, what we're going to really be exposing is an unlovable self and we're going to have to re-experience that again. So we armor, we're protecting ourselves against the bad news in a way. We armor with a physical tightness. Some of you might have noticed with letting in, there's just a block or sometimes it's a numbness or sometimes it's just all we can do is stay mental because we're not at home in our bodies, it just does not feel safe enough. We don't trust we're lovable, we accept the love we think we deserve. So a key dimension in homecoming, in coming back to the garden for each of us, really, is to begin to recognize the protective 
layering and pause and, and be with that and sense, you know, what does that place need and bring our attention there. But I want to pause here and say, if you found you couldn't let in love, it's not like you're being resistant or stubborn. You know? It's like it's not your fault. It's really a product of our conditioning. You know, if we come from a... Uh, from, if we're brought up from caregivers that were completely unattuned or let's say even abusive, we're going to be armored because there's going to be a deep message in our nervous system saying, good stuff is not coming my way or something's really wrong with me and I don't deserve good stuff and we're going to be protecting ourselves. If we're brought up in a culture that sends us the message that something's wrong with us, we're going to be armored. We're not going to have that porousness and receptivity when love does show up. Love can be always loving us, but if our caregiving and our culture are sending other types of messages, we're going to have a block that needs attention. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to look at two questions now for the last second half of, of this uh, exploration. And one is, you know, when we've left home, and we all leave home some due to our different levels of conditioning, what helps us discover that love is always loving us? What helps us to become more porous? And then the second question is, how do we help each other? Because, again, we're not waking up alone. We're waking up together. Somebody's on their way somewhere. <laughs> the younger son. <laughs> okay. All right, so the pathway to discovering love is always loving us. We often talk in the Buddhist tradition of the two wings of awareness. The first, see what's happening. And the second is soften and open our hearts to it. So we're talking about really seeing what's happening and how to soften our hearts in a way that really allows us to relax back. And I'd like to share with you an example of how that happens. Uh, A note that one person uh, wrote to me uh, from the Omega workshop and she described how some months back she landed in a place of really deep darkness, a really kind of a struggle she couldn't see her way out of and it was pretty much tormenting her. And she was listening to podcasts daily, um, you know, these mindfulness podcasts and, and, you know, trying to practice but she felt really, really stuck. But then she described one particular time where she started um, sobbing in one afternoon, she just didn't know how she could go on suffering much longer but instead of trying to stop the suffering, something in her just said, be with it. So she said, I stayed with it. And after a while I realized that I was afraid, that underneath the fear was the belief that I was unlovable. Ah, my biggest story. So I asked that part of myself, the part that felt unlovable, what do you need? And I put my hand on my heart and breathed in, may I feel safe. And I breathed out, may I feel loved. And as I did this, I remembered the people who were with me in the darkness. You, a few friends encouraging me, my daughter kept kept me company. I could envision and feel you all surrounding me. 
And then I widened the circle to include a few more trusted people and then a few more until the circle widened all the way out to my spiritual teachers, including the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh, Rumi and the Buddha, all encircling me, holding me. And then something truly magical happened. I realized that I had been, I had been with me in this darkness, doing things all along to care for myself, going for walks, listening to the podcast, reaching out for help. And that's when I connected with the loving presence inside me that's always been loving me. That's when I connected with the loving presence inside me that's always been loving me. At that moment the light came, I felt immediate relief and I noticed that the words to my breathing had spontaneously shifted to you are safe, you are loved. This is the first time I've taken the exquisite risk of facing one of my, men, my demons head on and offering a tea and I can feel a definite shift, some space, a refuge. So just a couple of comments because there's a few pieces to this that are really the practice that we're exploring together. And the first piece is we start recognizing the suffering of leaving the garden, the the suffering of feeling separate, of turning on ourselves, of turning on other people, of resentment, of jealousy, whatever it is. And instead of trying to get rid of it, instead of moving away or numbing or whatever habits we have, and we all have ways of getting away. We just, some part of us takes the exquisite risk to stay. Again, I want to credit Mark Nepo, thank you Mark, for that beautiful phrase, the exquisite risk, because it's life-changing. We stay. And then we stay and touch what's there and begin to in some way make a gesture of kindness and it's okay if it's mechanical. It's okay if we, you know, sense the part in us that needs love and we say, may you feel love, may you feel love, may I feel safe. It doesn't matter what we do, just the gesture, deep down, the intention is coming from the part of us that's always loving us. Even if in our small-mindedness it feels mechanical. And as you noticed, this person included others in her heart and mind to sense that it's not a separate self trying to re-enter the garden. We belong to this web, so we bring to mind others. We sense them holding us, that we sense them with us. And then it's in that enlarged sense of belonging that we begin to say, oh, the love has always been here, I just wasn't seeing it. So it's like remembering others bridges us back to a vast love that's within us and all beings that's always here. But we need that bridge. A couple of things I've found that I want to add to this, that sometimes we bring to mind other people but we still don't feel really held by them, it's still that armoring it helps to be intentional about letting love in. And by that I mean, pray for it. Pray to feel loved. Sometimes what I'll do, and I've done this when I felt really, really stuck, really caught, is just simply feel that longing and just say, please love me. 
You can try that. You can close your eyes and mentally whisper, please love me. And there's something in that universal call that softens our hearts. And when we have tears, when we really have a longing to feel love, the tears will really melt the armor. Just to know about that, to kind of be tracking for that, hey, this matters to me, I want to feel loved. And to then nourish that longing. It's not a grasping, it's a longing and your body will know the difference. Because people often ask me, well, isn't the longing for love another attachment? It can be if it fixates on a certain person in a certain way. But if you trace it back, the longing is a yearning to belong. And it's very tender and very open-handed and very porous. And when you get in touch with that longing, it actually makes it possible to receive. Rumi writes, I've been knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. Okay? So we're longing, and where's the longing come from? It comes from a universal and timeless love that's always and already here. It was just forgotten. So love is always loving us. I want to just mention again that it's very... it's very um, in the culture to say, well, we shouldn't be looking outside ourselves. And um, examine for yourself in a real honest way whether it's a grasping outside yourself or whether it's that yearning. The other thing to say about that is that um, all of us forget our worth, forget that we're lovable and need reminding. And it's a beautiful thing we do for each other to mirror back the gold. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, would you say to a child, like in that cartoon, who's saying, you know, I need love, that they shouldn't reach out outside themselves? Would you say to an adult who as a child never got love or affirmation, you shouldn't reach outside yourself? Or to someone who's regularly told by the wider culture that they're inferior, you shouldn't reach outside yourself? We humans belong to each other and we need to mirror each other. It's a beautiful part of our practice. Which leads to question number two. How do we provide that bridge for each other? How do we become the one who can offer blessings when another person's forgotten? Because that's what a blessing is. A blessing is in some way a reminder that helps a person come home to their true nature, to their awake heart, to their awake mind. How do we help others relax their armor? There's a story I heard, it came from Spain, a young man, Paco, and his father had a major altercation and Paco ran away and his father was searching for months to no avail. He was really desperate to reunite with his son. So he decided, his strategy was to put an ad in a local newspaper And he put this ad saying, Paco, meet me in the town square by the fountain at noon on Tuesday. So he went to the town square at noon on Tuesday and there were 800 young men named Paco (laughs) 
waiting for their fathers and for the forgiveness they never thought was possible. We all want to feel forgiven, seen, accepted, and loved. So how do we begin to offer that? And I'm going to speak first, I'm going to speak mostly individually how we can, and it will end with a practice on how we can offer our blessings um, to others. But I want to first speak on the societal level um, because so much of the suffering of severed belonging happens there. And here's the example I'm using. There's, there's much evidence that we perform according to what's expected of us. So if others see the gold and they see our potential, it draws it out. If others assume that we're not going to perform well and that we have no potential to go to college or succeed or be creative, then that keeps us very narrow. And so an example of this that's that's familiar and widely known that if African-American students in elementary school have an African-American teacher, better test scores and more favorable teacher perceptions, right? But a really powerful study came out this last March from uh, Johns Hopkins that looked at the long-run impact of teachers and students being matched Findings: Low-income black students who have at least one black teacher in elementary school are significantly more likely to graduate high school and consider attending college. Having one black teacher reduced the black student's probability of dropping out of school by 29%, and for very low-income black boys, the results are a reduction of the chance of dropping out by 39% having one black teacher in elementary school, just one teacher, 39%. Um, for some re- that very much upsets me. And I'm, I'm going to say why. I mean, it's very common sense that you know, if you have a role model, if you have someone that gets you and pays attention and believes in you, it's going to draw out the goodness. We get that. But then we look at what's actually happened in this country with Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954. It looked like this incredible boon to racial justice, right? Integration of schools. Well, what happened actually was African-American kids were integrated into white schools and within 10 years, half of all African-American teachers lost their jobs. Why? Because those who are hiring, the dominant culture, believed that white teachers were superior to black teachers and white parents wanted white teachers to be teaching their kids. Thousands of black educators' jobs were terminated. And then here we have it. It just takes one teacher. Imagine you have one or two or three So we need positive mirroring. And if this is interesting to you, by the way, I learned from, I got this from Malcolm Gladwell's podcast on revisionist history, this particular episode. And if you want to learn more about it, I thought it was really powerful. I bring this in because we're talking about coming home to the garden and the power of our relationships with each other and we're also in a relationship with the structures and institutions of our culture. 
and it's as much a part of our path to try to create a compassionate society as it is to wake up the compassion in our own hearts. So how do we do it in our own hearts? How do we deepen our attention so that we're with someone and there's a place in us that's scanning and saying, what do you need? You know, how are you feeling vulnerable? How can I respond in a way that reminds you that you belong? What would it be like if we scanned and did that? Rachel Remen says, one moment of unconditional love may call into question a lifetime of feeling unworthy and invalidate it. One teacher, one moment. There's a power we have in really showing up for each other, to remind each other. This is the essence of blessing. And I, um, last month, came across a short essay that I thought really expressed it as beautifully as I've heard, this power of blessing. And it was written by Alicia Vesel about his father, Elie Vesel. Vesel. It's an essay on his father's love, and I just want to read parts of it to you, because this is again um, a beautiful portrait of blessing. He says, as the cancer progressed with episodic violence, my father came closer to his end. I would often ask him what I could do for him. And smiling, he would hold my hand and look into my eyes and say, just be. Nothing more than that. There were no requests, no message he needed me to deliver, no instruction he needed me to absorb. Now the only thing he wanted to convey was his love for me and his faith in the direction I would take my life. He wanted me to understand what my existence meant to him, not the concept of a son, but the actual me, the good and the bad and the imperfect and the flawed, the whole practice, the whole package, just be. He describes how his father hadn't been always so open-ended in his affirmation in the sense that in his early years his message, offered with love and confidence, was be a good student, be a good son, and be a good Jew. That was the message. He says, as a young adult I did the opposite. I raged against my school, against my parents, and against my tradition. My father was ill-equipped to explain the rules of modern adolescence, and I raged against myself. His love seemed too heavy to bear. The confidence he had in me grievously misplaced. He tells a story of a rabbi who was once approached by a devotee bemoaning how far his son had strayed. The rabbi's surprising answer, love your son more. How could my father love me the way he did when my disrespect was so severe? My father must have heard this story because he lived it. He believed in me even when I did not believe in myself. He believed in me as I set out on a journey that would take me very far from Judaism and from him. And he believed in me even as I shouted at him I had wanted nothing to do with his religion, that I wanted to be an X factor in every equation he and my mother had used to project my life, that I would be an atheist or a Buddhist, anything but what he told me I had to be. (laughs) My father kept telling me to be a good student, a good son, a good Jew, But he said it more quietly. His love for me was an impossible love. 
His belief in me was an impossible belief, but he had a way of holding impossible beliefs. And now I too have impossible beliefs, beliefs that do not square with rational thought. I believe he's still with me, still believing in me. In the moment when he died, he went from being somewhere to being nowhere, and then he was everywhere. It was as though I could feel the universe resonating with his love for me, saying, I am still loving you, I will always love you, I am with you in everything you do. Do you remember when Bed and Kenobi was struck down in Star Wars, episode 4, and becomes more powerful than ever? It was like that, except that I alone could feel it. I can feel him loving me even today if I just open myself to it. Just be. This is the power of blessing, of really seeing who's there behind the mass, behind all the ego qualities, of cherishing the beingness of another, letting them know. He goes on to um, to then offer some suggestions to the rest of us. He says, do you say everything you have to say the way my father did until there's nothing left? Did someone, anyone have a better day today because of something you said or did? If you are a parent whose children still live with you, do you come home early from work every so often to play a game with your kids? Are you figuring out how to teach your children and when to stop teaching them and start trusting in them and acknowledging that this may be the greatest lesson of all, to stop teaching them and start trusting in them and acknowledging this may be the greatest lesson of all. So we're really just reflecting together on the way back to the garden and the practices of presence, of recognizing what takes us away, of bringing as much kindness as we can and sensing the possibility of letting in the love, the love that's always loving us in a very active yet receptive way. I'd like to close with a meditation that that explores us together. As you close your eyes, take a moment to sweep through your body with your awareness and relax any parts of your body that feel tight or tense. Take a few full breaths. And scanning people in your life, you might bring to mind someone who you know struggling right now with self-blame, self-judgment. the sense that you can pause and just bring a full attention to this person, imagining and feeling and sensing what's going on for them. 
And as you really let this person fill your attention, your awareness, both the challenge that they're facing and also sense the inherent goodness, the beingness of this person, the place in them that is really awareness, tenderness, sensitivity, love. and sense your own potential to in some way offer the blessing of forgiveness or acceptance not in the spirit of, oh, you've done something wrong but I forgive you but in that spirit of you are inherently a valuable, beautiful being trust that trust in the love that's here and sense that you can hold this person in your heart and send that message to them you might even imagine putting your hand on their shoulder or on their cheek imagine, sense you're just bathing them with your what your understanding and heart sees the goodness that's there send whatever message and words and touch might help to heal the part of them that is at war with themselves. You might imagine daily life encountering this person and finding some way to communicate the same sentiment of your love and your acceptance in a way they might be able to receive it just to imagine that imagine them in some way being touched by your caring heart And taking a few moments to scan and sense if there's any place in you right now that's feeling unacceptable or unforgivable, any place where you've turned on yourself. if you find some part of you that's contracted that you're, where you're divided against yourself 
You might explore inviting in the presence of someone that you know sees you well, cares about you, understands you. Just imagine and sense their forgiveness, acceptance, care washing through you. And if it feels hard, you might just sense your sincere intention to let in the loving. What would it be like to let in the care? To let it wash through you? to let it be something that can bathe and relax the armoring. You might notice and sense, if you can't feel your own forgiving heart space, that which is really part of this universal heart space, start to wake up as you let in love. Love is always loving you. We close with a poem called To My Mother by Wendell Berry. I was your rebellious son, do you remember? Sometimes I wonder if you do remember, so complete has your forgiveness been. So complete has your forgiveness been, I wonder sometimes if it did not precede my wrong and I erred safe found within your love, prepared ahead of me the way home or my bed at night, so that almost I should forgive you who perhaps foresaw the worst that I might do and forgave before I could act, causing me to smile now looking back to see how paltry was my worst compared to your forgiveness of it already given. And this then is the vision of that heaven of which we have heard, where those who love each other have forgiven each other where, for that, the leaves are green, the light a music in the air, and all is unentangled, and all is undismayed. And this, then, is the vision of that heaven of which we have heard, where those who love each other have forgiven each other, where, for that, the leaves are green, the light a music in the air, and all is unentangled, and all is undismayed. Namaste, and thank you for your attention. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.